In a world torn by revolution, one man's relentless ambition will help forge a nation. This winter, embark on an epic 12-part journey through the tumultuous times of America's founding in our new series, Hamilton at War. A short distance away from the guns, a group of Hessians clawed their way through the blinding white smoke, unaware of Hamilton's cannons pointed directly at them. Hamilton gave the deadly order, give fire! Bodies disappeared in a gray cloud that turned red. Hamilton at War is not just an audio series, it's an immersive journey through time. The revolutionary series begins November 1st on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to D-Day in 90 Minutes, our 15-part weekly podcast series that delves deep into the historic Allied invasion that turned the tide of World War II. I'm Robert Child, and I hope you enjoy this latest installment. D-Day in 90 Minutes, written by William Bradle, Robert Child, narrated by Travis. Pointe du Hoc. Will you tell me how we did this? Anybody would be a fool to try this. It was crazy then, it is crazy now. Lieutenant Colonel James Earl Rudder, Ranger Battalion. Some places have to be seen to be believed, or at least comprehended. The Bloody Pond at Shiloh, the Sixth Floor Depository in Dallas, the boulders of Little Big Top looking down into the primitive cockpit of a Sopwith camel from the gallery of the Imperial War Museum, and Pointe du Hoc, or Hook Point, to the list. You reach it from Omaha Beach on a two-lane road going up and up. You don't really notice the grade as you look from the road to the sea and back, and then you are traveling on level ground. The sea is far away, or feels that way. You park in a small lot. Walk a hundred yards covered in grass. You note the large dips and holes, then realize those are shell holes. Pieces of concrete as big as trucks are thrown around. You can go down into some of the bunkers. They smell of concrete. You walk in front of the bunkers and then look down, straight down, a hundred feet, the height of a ten-story building. You feel like you're going over the edge, thinking, like Rudder, how did they do that? That was U.S. Rangers landing on a beach you can't see from the top because of the sheer cliff, then scaling the cliff and taking the German artillery position the Allies feared the most in Normandy. The Allied planners' intelligence showed that the Germans had five 155mm cannon on Pointe du Hoc, from which they could blast both Utah Beach and Omaha Beach. They were so convinced of the Germans' firepower that before the invasion, they dropped or fired explosives equaling the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Nine LCAs, or Landing Craft Assault, carried the 225 men of Rudder's command toward the cliff, while the British destroyer Tollibont and the U.S. Satterley shelled the point. As with most boats on D-Day, Rudder's got lost and headed for the beach three miles east of his target. Rudder spotted the mistake and got the boats back on track. But he was late, and that would cost him his 500-man support force of rangers. If this second force did not receive a success signal by 7 a.m., it meant the attack had failed and they would head for Omaha. Rudder came in anyway. The 40-foot-long assault crafts laid down covering fire, while the rangers fired rockets topped off with grapnel hooks, trailing ropes, and rope ladders. Many of the hooks didn't take, 
and came back down on the troops now unloading on the beach, which wasn't sand but small hard rock. Some ropes and ladders did take, only to be cut by the Germans above, who were raining fire and hand grenades down on the rangers. Four DUKWs, or ducks, tried to come ashore. One was sunk, and three couldn't get a footing on the clay-covered slick beach. They were outfitted with extension ladders borrowed from the London Fire Brigade. Only one would get up, manned by Sergeant William Stivison, who carried a machine gun, firing in arcs as the ladder swayed at 45 degrees in each direction. With the duck slipping and sliding, they pulled Stivison back down and retracted the ladder. The rangers started up the ropes. The ropes were three-quarters of an inch thick, or the same material made into rope ladders. They also carried toggle ropes, six-foot lengths of rope with fittings at each end for hooking together. By the time the ropes had been launched, they were soaked and slippery from the ocean spray and waves. Besides slick ropes, a German machine gunner was on their left flank, systematically sweeping the beach, killing and wounding 15 men. The men started up the slick ropes. The pitch of the cliff was such that they couldn't use their feet, so they went up hand over fist. Some came sliding down. Some gave up on the ropes and dug handholds with their combat knives. A Lieutenant Kirchner had no problems, saying the climb was easy, a lot easier than some of their training climbs. Others slid back down, the ropes burning the palms of their hands after sliding 30 or 40 feet. Sergeant William L. Rod Petty slid down a rope, landing at the feet of a medical officer. The doctor chewed out Petty, saying, get up the cliff. Petty wasn't taking it, retorting, I've been trying to get up this goddamned rope for five minutes, and if you think you can do any better, you can fucking well do it yourself. Having let off his steam, Petty tried again and went up the cliff. Despite the slick ropes and the Germans cutting the ropes at the top while raining potato mashers down on the Americans, the rangers started getting to the top, cutting barbed wire and gunning down the German defenders. Soon, they were all on top except for the dead, wounded, and medical staff. Rudder ordered the radio man to send the success signal, tilt. With the signal, the remaining rangers floating offshore headed to Omaha Beach, with Rudder expecting them to attack Pointe du Hoc from the land, hooking up with his men from the sea. The rangers had to clear the area and find the artillery guns threatening Utah and Omaha. They ignored the machine gun to the east and an anti-aircraft gun to the right, heading for the casements. They were empty. There were only wooden telephone poles pointing out to sea. Using fake cannons was not a new idea. Both sides in the American Civil War used them and called them Quaker cannons. The guns were missing, but there were tracks leading off the cliff, so troopers followed the tracks. Not all of them followed the tracks. There was still a lot of resistance, with German soldiers popping up, taking a shot, and disappearing. The men crawled everywhere. Private Robert Fulling came back 25 years later because he wanted to see what the place looked like standing up. The biggest roadblock remained the machine gun nest on the eastern edge of the defended area. Nothing the rangers had could hit or wipe it out. A Navy signal team boat attached to the rangers had taken a shell and sunk, but a Lieutenant Eichner of the rangers lugged a World War I signal light, outfitted with a tripod and telescopic sight from the team's equipment. His men found the batteries, got it hooked up, 
and signaled the Satterley. The destroyer fired for range, and on the third shot, the five-inch guns blew the machine gun nest off the cliff face. The Satterley spent 40 days off the Normandy coast, then took part in the invasion of southern France and moved on to serve in the Pacific. She was decommissioned after the war, put in reserve, and scrapped in 1970. Actor Henry Fonda served as quartermaster third class on the Satterley, but it transferred to officer school prior to D-Day. The search for the guns continued, while the Rangers met stiff resistance. Sergeant Petty was now up the cliff and in the lead, when two Germans jumped up out of a shell hole right in front of him. He fell to the ground, firing his BAR as he went, the bullets going right between the two German soldiers. They threw their guns down and surrendered. A ranger behind him cracked, Hell, Elrod, that's a good way to save ammo. Just scare them to death. At 8.15 a.m., 50 rangers were now on the perimeter looking for the guns following the tracks. Half a mile inland, they found them, set up, loaded with stacks of shells ready to be fired on Utah Beach. Across a field a hundred yards away, a hundred German artillerymen were waiting for the barrage to lift. The rangers had to work fast, pushing thermite grenades down the barrels, smashing the sights. Another group found a bigger ammunition dump and blew it up with grenades. Much has been made of the guns being gone. The mission, a brave failure. That is not true because the guns were operational. There was plenty of ammunition and the guns could hit both American beaches. The rangers had fulfilled their mission and now had to defend the point for 48 hours with nothing but mortars and machine guns. The Germans counterattacked that day, that night, and through the next day. The rangers held, although once they were relieved, only 50 of the original 200 could report for duty, with the remainder either dead or wounded. Colonel Rudder left the Army after the war, staying in the reserves, and was promoted to Major General in 1957. In 1959, he became president of his alma mater, Texas A&M University, a post he held until his death in 1970. Rudder initiated many changes at A&M, which allowed it to grow into a renowned university. Against strong resistance from alumni and legislators, he made membership in the Corps of Cadets optional, allowed women to attend, and integrated the university. Rudder Tower is at one end of the Memorial Student Center, the wearing of hats in the center is prohibited to honor the Aggie War dead. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the series. Be sure to be with us for our next installment. I'm Robert Child, and this has been D-Day in 90 Minutes, only on Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.